United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest is Mark Burroughs, professor at the Protestant University of Applied Sciences in Bochum, Germany. Burroughs is a historian of medieval Christianity with research interests in the mystics, visionaries, and poets who have often found themselves living and working in the margins of Christianity. His poetry collection, A Chance of Home, is published by Paraclete Press. Recent collaborations with John M. Sweeney include a volume of poetry inspired by Meister Eckhart, and edited selections of Meister Eckhart's writings. His translations include Rainer Maria Rilke's early Prayers of a Young Poet and 99 Psalms by the Iranian-German poet Said. An elected fellow to the Society for the Arts and Religion in Contemporary Culture, Burroughs has taught at graduate theological schools in the US and Europe and is a frequent retreat leader. He's received numerous awards and fellowships, including a Fulbright ITT Fellowship for Graduate Study at the University of Tübingen. His PhD and MDiv are from Princeton Theological Seminary. Mark Burroughs, welcome to the Seminary Explorers. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm delighted to be with you. Let's start with where you've landed geographically since the uh, outbreak of the pandemic. You know, well, that's a, a, a long, a short question, but a long answer. I have been teaching in Germany uh, since 2012 and uh, came back during our mid-semester break in January of this year and was set to go back in March uh, to continue teaching. And of course, this is when the lockdown really hit hard when uh, the Europeans began to close airports to Americans coming in because the infection rate was so strong here and they were trying to curb, curb the rate in Germany. So since March, I've been in Camden, Maine, where I live uh, with my wife and our Springer Spaniel puppy and one of our daughters who's come home from uh, New York City uh, as an actor, unemployed actor and musician. She uh, was glad to find a place where she could work more quietly um, with us. So that's been a, a joy. But it's a very strange being here. And of course, um, the situation in Maine is somewhat different than it is in other parts of the country. The rate of infection is relatively small, but it's spreading. And the unsettlement is palpable. The uncertainties mm. uh, affect us here as they do everywhere else in the country. Mm. And so everything is sort of as you left it in Germany for the moment, right? Strangely, yes. I still have an apartment there, my office at the university. Uh, it's all, uh, everything went online and the university is still online this fall and will be through the spring. So they're taking severe precautions, uh, much more so than uh, is, is possible here in our state-oriented uh, Federation, United States, uh, the German government has imposed restrictions uh, on all public institutions, including universities, that remain mm. in place and will through the year. 
Yeah, it is structured so that um, those things can be much more uniform. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one reason they've had much better uh, control over the over the spread of the of the virus uh, up in the yeah. So how has the pandemic brought you to some recent teachings on wonder? This is one of the topics that I think you've been exploring um, in some depth lately. Indeed. And in point of fact, I've been working on wonder for the last uh, several years and had begun to put together a number of, of retreats that were to have taken place in France and in England and in the United States. Um, all of those went online. And, and the focus of that work uh, didn't change substantially, but the direction of it certainly changed because wonder is something that is never in a way out of date. It's one of the most primal expressions, experiences and expressions of our humanness uh, that we have. It was Socrates who said that philosophy, wisdom, the, the, the love of wisdom begins with wonder. And one might say it continues with wonder and it never ends mm. in wonder. But certainly the, the unsettled times we're living in have made wonder, I think, both a more distant uh, experience or dimension of our experience for some, and perhaps for those very same people, a more desperately important dimension of what it is to recover something so essential to our humanness that we cannot, it's like breathing. One, one can't survive, I think, as a growing uh, person without uh, an active sense of wonder. Hmm. And that's interesting, that the active sense of wonder, that's a... Um, Absolutely. That's a, an, an emphasis. It is, and you know, wonder, in in English, it's a it's an ambivalent word. It can be a noun. It can be a verb. You can talk about the state of wonder, being in a state of wonderment or wonder, where you open yourself to the world around you, or the world within you. You you pause to reflect on dimensions of experience that you might not have noticed at first. But it's also a verb. I wonder. And, and and when we use wonder as a verb, we're, we're expressing a, a way of making our mind more spacious, more to increase the capacity of our experience or of our, of our involvement in, in our own lives and in the world, the lives around us. And it's that ambivalence that's so... I think so important in in what wonder really is all about. You know, for me, hmm. I read a book when I was a boy. It came out in my childhood, and somehow this book found its way into my family's library, as it did into the the, the libraries of of many many families, American families, by Rachel Carson. Um, she wrote a book called The Sense of Wonder in the late 1950s. And she wrote it really uh, as, as a way, as a gift to her nephew, whom she spent uh, countless hours with in the summers. Uh, she summered in Maine. She lived in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I lived for a number of years when my family was younger. But she summered in, here in Maine, became one of the most articulate uh, defenders of the environment. One could say the modern ecological movement has much, uh, uh, has, well, she didn't create it, but she was really one of the originating voices 
of that movement with a book called The Silent Spring. Uh, many of you remember reading that book. What will the spring look like when there are no more insects because we have killed them with pesticides? When the birds, therefore, no longer come to our fields and our yards and our forests. But the little book, The Sense of Wonder, is a little essay she wrote, which was published in a journal, a magazine at the time. And it remains, I think, a kind of classic invitation. And in the middle of that book, she has this to say, a child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us, that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed and even lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with a good fairy who's supposed to preside over the christening of all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout life as an unfailing antidote against the boredom and disenchantments of later years, the sterile preoccupation with things that are artificial, the alienation from the sources of our strength. It's a marvelous wow. credo, really. And I think it's one wow. reason why in times like this, where so many of us are feeling the weight of isolation, the burden of being interrupted in our lives. This is like a huge interruption in our cultural life. It's understandable why people are uh, resistant, why some, many Americans are resistant to taking precautions uh, for the sake of curbing the infection rate of the disease because they're, they're tired of being interrupted. They're tired of being isolated. So that's a very natural thing. The question is, how might wonder be a source of strength for us in times like this, to help us learn to see the, the gifts that we leave unnoticed because of our disenchantment with what's been taken away from us. And it could be all kinds of little things, seeing patterns in the world around us, the world we observe from our window, perhaps, or from our front yard, if we have a yard in front of our house, or from the street where we live in learning to be more attentive to the simple things that mark the, the coming and going of seasons, that mark the, the uh, rhythms of the moon, and here at Maine at least, of the tides, being more actively attentive and open to the physical world in which we live, which we're a part of. Nature is not something over against us. We're, we're part of this natural world. So I think wonder can be a way for us, a portal, as it were, to enter this world, our world, our lives, with more curiosity, with a sense of awe, and respect, and a sense of the preciousness of each moment that is a gift in its own particular way for us. I found that the people who've helped me most in this are the artists, uh, whether they're painters or whether they're poets, sculptors, people who pay attention to doing small things, to creating perhaps small gestures, uh, as ways of of inviting a deeper appreciation of that world. One of my favorite poets, uh, really, uh, I think she's as close to what the Japanese call a national treasure, 
as any poet among us, the late Mary Oliver, wrote oh, yeah. tirelessly about the beauties and the complexities and the the all around us and the awe that this inspires if we pause to begin to take it in. And in one of her last books, a book called Blue Iris, she has a poem of that title, which I'd like to read, Blue Iris. It's a conversation that she had with a flower. Now that I'm free to be myself, who am I? Can't fly, can't run, and see how slowly I walk. Well, I think I can read books. What's that you're doing? The green-headed fly shouts as it buzzes past. I close the book. Well, I can write down words like these, softly. What's that you're doing? Whispers the wind, pausing in a heap just outside the window. Give me a little time, I say back to its staring silver face. It doesn't happen all of a sudden, you know. Doesn't it? Says the wind and breaks open, releasing distillation of blue iris. And my heart panics not to be, as I long to be, the empty, waiting, pure, speechless receptacle. That's a magnificent poem, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And it takes on even different, uh, uh, it's even more powerful now um, in our pandemic state, so, isn't it? I think so, because, you know, we're, we're all so aware of what we can't do that we sometimes forget about all of the things, the simple things that we could do. Now, I don't encourage us to go out and have conversations with the wind and the flies and the irises, and that's not really her point. Her point is to imagine how this world, the ordinary things of the world, invite us to pay attention to what we are. And this la- these last lines, my heart panics not to be, as I long to be, the empty, waiting, pure, speechless receptacle. This is so counterintuitive. This is everything that we sometimes assume that we should try to avoid being. We want to be full. We want to be uh, f- filled with speech. We want to be filled with, with confidence. We want to be going places and doing things. To be waiting, to be empty, to be speechless. What would it mean to pause in our lives and, and allow, allow the world to be what it is? and to engage us in the ways that we can open ourselves to it. And here, what I love about so many of Mary Oliver's poems, these are not heroic gestures. These are not grand statements. They're little invitations to be alive. They're small gestures to recover, to find again something that we had as children and have lost as we've gotten older and more burdened with responsibilities. So the poems like Mary Oliver's have been, have, have become so um, meaningful, isn't the right word really, they've become so luminous. 
uh, mm. almost so radiant in my own experience. And reading these poems with people has been a remar remarkable gift for me over these these recent months. So I've been doing these online retreats. You mentioned them earlier on Wonder and other themes as well. But that one has struck a particular chord. And I think because uh, all of us know that we're at the edge of losing something, well, losing our lives perhaps, or losing our livelihood. And our fear can quickly close us off, not simply from other people or from the natural world around us, it closes us from our own heart, from the, from the deep uh, capacities of, of what we have long called our soul. And um, we need these invitations to remember that dimension of our experience and to encourage us to, in a sense, to enhearten us, if I can, 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 can give that word in a strange English rendering, to encourage us to come back to our heart, to discover our heart again in times like this. Mm. What are some of the, um, I'm just curious, some of the responses um, or the feedback that you've been getting in your workshops? Well, I think for, for many people who come to these workshops, the idea of sitting with a single poem for 15 or 20 minutes or even longer is an experience that, um, that they may never have had. And it happens so often that, I, that people say to me after uh, a talk I've given or a, a retreat I've led, I never knew how much I could love poems. And I think part of that is because we, we ruin poems in school, sadly. We, we teach the technique of poetry without letting the voice of a poem find its own way with us. Uh, in a sense, a poem is, is like a window that is looking into our souls. Not that we're looking into the poem. The poem is, is in a way, we're looking over its shoulder as it invites us to discover ourselves in a new way. A beautiful example of that is a, a, the, the, the great Portuguese poet, Fernando Pessoa, who mm. wrote often in, in these pseudonyms. He, he created different characters, and these characters would write, well, he would write these books of poems from different vantage points. And one of those vantage points uh, was a shepherd. And the, the collection of poems was called The Keeper of Sheep in its English translation. Uh, and here's a snatch of one of his poems. From my village, I see as much of the universe as can be seen from the earth. And so my village is as large as any town. For I am the size of what I see and not the size of my height. In the cities, life is smaller than here in my house on top of this hill. The big cities, big buildings of cities lock up the view. They hide the horizon, pulling our gaze far away from the open sky. They make us small, for they take away all the vastness our eyes can see. And they make us poor, for our only wealth is our seeing. Ah. 
Now, this is written from the vantage point of a shepherd, so somebody who wasn't used to living in cities, obviously. And Pessoa lived in cities in Lisbon for most of his life. So uh-huh. he's not complaining about cities, really, but he's describing how the smallest vantage point opens the wideness of the earth, of the world in which uh, we live, in very p- particular and powerful ways. And I love that line, I am the size of what I see. Imagine if we looked at our lives that way, that we, we could imagine our stature, our character even, in terms of how much we could see into the mystery of life, uh, and not what we could accomplish or what we could do in the moments uh, we're given in, on this earth. For our wealth, and also, hmm, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. For our only wealth is our seeing. He says, "Our only wealth is how we look, how we see things." There's something so essential about that, and in some ways, it's it's not far from the texture of Jesus preaching uh, his teachings using very simple images that would have been so familiar to the the common people he spoke to in his day images of gardening and farming images of of tending sheep and te- uh, making houses all of the images that fill these parables are the commonplace things that occupied people's lives and again and again he said this is where you'll see what God is like. This is where you'll see the reign of God. In these unexpected, these simple, ordinary surprises, these reversals of what our common expectations might be for value, for meaning, for importance, for wealth. And another thing about meaning that I'm thinking of today with people um, not exactly locked away, but but constrained, it, a lot of us are, are living in um, dramatically different circumstances. Um, people who are at home, depending on how many rooms that might be in, in your context. And there, there are different kinds of crisis of um, identity. And to hear this, I am the size of what I see and not the size of my height. There's so much about our, our identities that we end up receiving that's kind of you know forced from others or from the, the the outside world and it's also so interesting to me to think about this it's so freeing um it's so freeing to hear that in our context right now i mean in a way it's remembering the the power of our own agency that no one can yeah. take away from us if we refuse to give it up no one and no circumstance yeah. can take away from us. So, I mean, in a way, I think this crisis that we're this pandemic that we're living through. It, well, it's not that there's this is a silver lining in it, but there's an opportunity in the midst of it. I mean, the Greek word "krisis" crisis, from which we get "crisis," mm-hmm. meant opportunity. It, it it was a kind of opening. What will we do with this uh, challenge that we're facing? And I think you know, it it it's not. Uh, going to help us if we depend upon, well, the kind of knowledge that we that that has kept us going in ordinary times. These are not ordinary times, uh, and I think we, in such times as this, we we need the artists, we need the poets, the songwriters, we need the sculptors and the painters and the dancers to remind us 
of the full glory of what it is to be alive in this world and in this time. Mm. A little poem in my book, The Chance of Home, um, which I entitled What Glory, has an epigram from Jesus, Consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, which hearers of this podcast will identify very, very quickly. And here's the poem in two parts. Part one. A lone sparrow sings into the edging morning light, spilling her praise into the rising day. This is courage. Not to ask if the song is right, repeating over and over in short bursts, cheep, cheep, cheep. She never thinks of some longer view, but sings on because she's made for this, her body a feathered muscle of praise, which trails out a clear and unrelenting yes. Her song is prayer unceasing, a rhyme untouched by reason. And the second part. And what of the lilies? We give them names, Tinkerbell and Turk's Cap, Trout and Trillium, all witnesses without toil or trade to what we try so hard to grasp, their roots lifting color from the fall of light and deep of earth. And what of us who sow our endless seeds of worry and persistent doubt? What are we with our most fervent cares and earnest deeds? What glory of ours exceeds birdsong or seed burst? Mm, lovely. And that's such a fine collection, too. And I can see the, the birds on the illustration on the cover. <laughs> I think there's really something, something to that, 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 that the, the, voice, the, the voice of the divine, however we understand that, is always singing in these most ordinary ways, is always showing bits of itself glimpses of itself in the most tedious things that happen day by day, moment by moment. If we have eyes to see, if we have ears to hear this as a kind of, of unworded praise or a kind of, um, how might one say it, a kind of making visible of what remains mm -hmm. otherwise invisible of mystery. And this line, a feathered muscle of praise. We were just talking about agency earlier, and I, I find that that is, that is just dripping and with agency. Agency is what the world <laughs> is all about. And in a sense, as I said earlier, no one can steal that from us unless we give it up ourselves. In these times, I think the uh, being encouraged by the kind of song that is singing itself in this world all of the time is so important. I mean, not just by looking at birds or thinking about, about beautiful flowers, but by the small acts of generosity and kindness that are perhaps more eloquent than the hot, aired political rhetoric and the divisive uh, voices that seem to be always shouting in the public arena. There's a place mm. for that contest. There's a place for that struggle. but. If that is all we give our energies to, we'll lose our souls, we'll neglect our hearts, and we'll close our minds very steadily to the point where we simply exist uh, with nothing beyond that. And that would be a terrible, 
experience for us. So people have been responding to wonder uh, all through the ages. And I think especially at times when it's hard to find, when it's uh, out of uh, out of popularity, as it were, and where it's a, a kind of a hidden dimension that is ours to reclaim as a way of reclaiming our own lives. That's interesting. When wonder is hard to find, I hadn't thought about it that way, but absolutely, absolutely. Well, would you, would you maybe in closing say something particular to seminarians, you know, to theologians who are, who are faced with uh, this extra layer of <laughs> trying to um, go about their, their training uh, and their vocation, getting ready uh, to go out and serve in a very strange world. Just got to say it, very, very strange world. And, uh, and for now, what's, what's something, um, I mean, you've already said such powerful things about wonder, but what's something specifically to seminarians that you might um, like to say? Well, I come back to the poem uh, that I began with by Mary Oliver, to be this waiting, pure, speechless receptacle. It's such a, again, it's a, it seems a contradiction to to suggest to seminarians, to those entering into ministry, or to those in ministry, that our task is to empty ourselves of the fullness that we've received in our education, in our professional training, and in our experience. But I suspect that that's never been as important as it is now, because what people actually, I find, are not looking for right now are big answers to questions. <clears throat> they're, they're, they're yearning for some kind of simple connection. And the, 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 the most eloquent voice we can bring is the voice of listening, the voice of trying to hear through the pain, through the confusion, through the anger through the discouragement, through the despair of those around us, where, where it is in, those, in that life or in those lives that hope is waiting to be found again, and how in our listening, in our opening ourselves, we might be an agent that uh, participates in, in the discovery, uh, among others. Of the, of the word, finding flesh and blood in their own lives, the word of forgiveness, the word of mercy, the word of tenderness, the word of love. So if there's anything I can say that might be of, of some help in times like this, it's listen, open your life, open your hands, open your heart, open your mind, and imagine that you are a receptacle for that pain, that you are a receptacle for that confusion, for, that you, you don't need to solve it. You don't need to answer the questions or, or have a solution to the problems, but you are given the opportunity and the gift, in fact, of being present in the birthing of life from the ashes of despair and from the shadows of death. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you've been listening to The Seminary Explorers. I'm Katie Giebenhain. My guest has been Professor Mark Burroughs. Learn more about him and his work at www.msburroughs.com. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. You as well. Go and wonder. You have been listening to The Seminary Explorers, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. Opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.